If I had only known the last time would be the last time I would have put off all the things I had to do I would have stayed a little longer Held on a little tighter Now what I'd give for one more day with you There's a wound here in my heart where something's missing And they tell me that it's going to heal with time But I know you're in a place where all your wounds have been erased And knowing yours are healed is healing mine The only scars in hell Until I 
finally see what you can see. Let's pray together. Lord, we're going to see in this text today your great, uh, extravagant grace. And we know that it's by the scars on your hands and your feet that you gave us such grace. We know that it's by the, the great agony upon the cross that you gave your life for us and Lord, we, we just see that grace in page upon page of Scripture, and I pray that we'll see that uh, in the pages of Scripture today, that we'll see your great grace, and that we will not take it for granted, that we will not see it as cheap grace, but very costly grace. Lord, may your, a reminder of your grace change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from John, uh, the very end of John chapter 7, verse uh, 53, and then 8, uh, 1 to 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been called in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, but what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? He has, no one, has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, John seven fifty three to John eight eleven is one of the great texts of Scripture. It's, it's often referred to in discussions regarding sin and justice and mercy. But at the same time, there is no way around dealing with a textual concern here. 
If you're reading along today in a translation, chances are your translation has a note which reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to 8, 11. You'll find that I know in the ESV and the NIV. Uh, the King James doesn't include that because it uses the Textus Receptus, which was a later manuscript, and you'll, you'll get to that in, in a bit, but there's a reason the note's there. It seems that many liberal and conservative scholars alike agree that this text was probably not included in the early manuscripts of John. However, many of those same scholars tend to agree that this is an authentic story, and it's rightly included, but it should be bracketed as the ESV has done. <clears throat> the arguments against it being included in John's gospel is that indeed some of the early manuscripts did not include it. Second, this story perhaps disrupts the flow of John's gospel. Scholars point out that John would flow just fine if we went straight from 752 to John 8:12, that is, if Jesus just remained in the temple teaching. But I can't help but think, life doesn't always flow in a straight line, does it? I mean, maybe as verses 1 and 2 state, Jesus did go up to the Mount of Olives, and then he came back to the temple early the next morning to teach. That doesn't seem odd to me at all. Further, scholars say that the vocabulary and the style does not seem to fit the rest of John's gospel. For example, verse 3 says that scribes and Pharisees brought a woman. The synoptics often talk about scribes and Pharisees, but this is the only place that John pairs the terms scribes and Pharisees. However, I personally believe that the text is authentic that it describes an authentic event. And a great number of later manuscripts do indeed include this text. And it contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. Further, the picture we have here of a wise, loving, forgiving Savior is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Not only that, but it's highly unlikely that the early church, if it was going to make up a story as some have accused, would they would not make up the story the way this story appears. There are too many odd details that aren't explained, like the, the mysterious unknown writing on the ground. Also remember, many early believers were Jews. And if they had been, been making up a story, they would not made up a story in which Jesus is so lenient with a woman caught in adultery. Whether or not it appeared in John's very original manuscript, I can't say with certainty, but I believe it's authentic, and Jesus truly had this encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees and a woman caught in adultery. But as always, I want to urge you, don't merely take my word for it. Do your own research. Be faithful. Research it. I've tried to be faithful. I've done the research, but I'd urge you to do your own. And let me hasten to add, please, Please do not conclude that we have a reliability issue here. Just the opposite is true. John Piper, in a 2011 sermon on this very text, told his congregation that we have over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. That's more, far more than any other document from antiquity. Most other documents from that same time frame, we maybe have two copies 
At most, we've got 10 copies on some of them. But we have 5,800 copies of the New Testament. No document from antiquity has been preserved better than the Gospels. And God in His providence has so carefully ordered the recording, the copying, the, the preserving of the New Testament that there are precious few variations in all those 5,800 documents. And no variation uh, is very big. Even these that have a, a bigger variation, no doctrine of the, of the Christianity is changed by this story. It doesn't alter anything, whether you leave it in or put it out in terms of the great doctrines of the church. For me, knowing that the Bible has been scrutinized as much as it has, has, even when there's an ongoing debate like there is on this one, I'm confident that we have the Bible we have because it went through a very, very, very careful recording process, and that recording process was dictated by the Holy Spirit. I believe this story is authentic. That's my conclusion. Uh, I've done the research. I would urge you to do the same, because here's what I know. If you're willing to do authentic research on the Scriptures, you're going to find that God has very carefully preserved them, and they are true, they are authentic, they are God's Word to you and to me. Do the research, and I, I guarantee you, you're gonna, if you genuinely do it, you're going to come to that conclusion that they're authentic, that they're reliable. That said, and it's more than I wanted to say, but I want to be faithful because I know you're going to be looking at it and you're going to see that note uh, in a text and someone's going to bring that up to you. So I want to be faithful this morning. This text is primarily about Jesus. It's primarily about Jesus. It, yes, it includes the scribes and the Pharisees, and it, of course, includes the woman, but this text is primarily about what Jesus says and what Jesus does. So we're going to focus there. And because there's a little bit of controversy with this text, I'm going to also show you how it's consistent with other texts in the New Testament, okay? I hope that's going to be a fair and faithful approach to this text. The first thing I would point out is the humility of Jesus. Verse 53 and verse 1, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Think about that. Everyone else went to their house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Some speculate that he may have stayed with Lazarus and Mary and Martha that evening because their home was at Bethany, which was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. I think Jesus slept out on the mountainside. That's what I think the text is saying. Either way, during his active ministry, Jesus did not have a home of his own. He intentionally humbled himself, which is very consistent with the rest of Scripture. Even at his birth, Luke 2, 7, we know it. His mother wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in an inn. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. Our Lord was so humble. But I must also give you a warning especially if you choose to reject Him. His second coming will be in stark contrast to His first coming. Please make no mistake this morning, beloved. He is returning in power and in glory. 
And we need to remember that. But here, he's humble. Great humility. We also see the great wisdom of our Lord in this text. Uh, Let's read again verses 3 to 9. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus had the wisdom to know this was a trap. He also had the wisdom to avoid the trap. And he also avoided the trap while upholding God's word and God's truth. Let me try to explain. The scribes and the Pharisees interrupted Jesus' teaching. And they brought a woman in, probably drug her in. A woman, quote, caught in adultery. And Jesus knew from the very beginning that they were setting a trap. And how did he know that? Well, the seventh commandment does indeed prohibit adultery. But the law was very strict about the requirement to witness the actual act. They couldn't just see an unmarried man and woman coming in and out of the same house. They couldn't even just see a man and a woman come out of the same bedroom. In fact, they couldn't simply even see a man and a woman lying in the same bed. No, they had to literally catch them in the act. And that would have been highly unlikely that these scribes and Pharisees called anyone in the act of adultery. And Jesus knew it. Second, they only brought the woman. And Jewish law was very clear that the man and the woman had to be punished. Third, being under Roman rule at the time, the Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment anyway. Stoning her wasn't an option. Jesus knew it was a setup. He knew from the very beginning. He knew that the scribes and the Pharisees thought they had him between that proverbial rock and a hard place. If he objected to stoning her, he would be guilty of opposing the Mosaic law, and he would be discredited as the Messiah. But if he agreed with her accusers, he would undermine his reputation as a savior of sinners, and he would also be in trouble with the Roman authorities. Now, we don't know exactly what he was writing on the ground. Some people have speculated that maybe he was writing a list of all the sins of the scribes and Pharisees. I I don't know. But his answer was brilliant. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, Jesus didn't minimize the woman's guilt. But he cut the ground out from under the scribes and the Pharisees by revealing that they were unfit to be her judges and executioners. Jesus taught something similar in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? The text tells us that one by one, the, the Pharisees left beginning with the oldest. Perhaps the oldest were more keenly aware of their sins. And well, being older, they had more sins to account for. Ironically, those who came to put Jesus to shame left ashamed. Those who came to condemn the woman left condemned. Unfortunately, there's no record, though, of their repentance. But Jesus wisely navigated the trap that they had set. And Jesus' statement, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, doesn't just condemn the woman or the scribes and Pharisees, it's also a condemnation of us. It's a clear reminder that we've all sinned that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? Praise God, we see the grace of Jesus in the very next verses, verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, and by the way, woman's a term of endearment here. This is the very words that Jesus used to, to refer to his own dear mother when he called her woman. It's a term of respect and endearment. He said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And he, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And this is clearly not the only time that Jesus in the Gospels forgave someone's sins, right? I mean, what happened here is consistent with the rest of the Gospels. In Matthew 9 and Mark 2, Jesus not only heals, heals a paralytic, but he forgives his sins. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, Jesus forgives the sins of a woman who is anointing his feet. And there it says a woman who very speci uh, excuse me, specifically was designated as a woman of the city, a sinner. And what's amazing to me is that in each of these stories, Jesus doesn't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. The person doesn't ask. Jesus actually reaches out his hands in forgiveness to them. He extends grace to them. I believe it's because Jesus knew their hearts. He knew they were repentant. He knew they were sorry for their sins, and so he extended his grace. The proud and the arrogant, like the scribes and the Pharisees, they were not repentant at all. And so no grace was extended to them. It would have been had they repented. You see, those who are keenly aware of their sins and those who repent receive grace. That grace is available to any of us who will admit that we're sinners, that we need His grace. But I want you to please note this morning that it's not cheap grace. It's not a license to sin. Today's very promiscuous society is quick to point out that Jesus did not condemn this woman. But our society is just as quick to ignore his closing phrase when he said, go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a commandment. The Apostle Paul continued that same teaching in Romans 6, verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
And Paul answers by no means. As I understand the text, it's the strongest negative there. Paul says, by no means, absolutely not, don't sin, keep on sinning. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the grace of Christ, our great pardon from sin, is not a license to sin. Rather, grace is a motivation to live a changed life. Grace is a motivation to live a changed life. It's a little like, and anytime you do an analogy, it never quite works out. It's never strong enough. But it's a little like my experience growing up. I got in my fair share of mischief. But I grew up in a town a lot like Stewart, where my sins beat me back home. Mama somehow knew about it. And often knew about it by the time I was walking in the door. I can remember some nights when I tried to hustle on down to my bedroom and I heard Mama say, you need to go talk with that boy. I tried to jump in the bed and act like I was asleep, but it didn't work. But I got into some mischief. But here's what I know. I think I would have gotten in even more mischief, except for one fact. I didn't want to disappoint my parents and my grandparents too much. I didn't want to disappoint them. I hated that I'm disappointed in you conversation more than any other. And I think grace works in our heart just a little bit like that. You, you see, I'm guilty before God. But rather than condemn me, Christ came and He died for me and He took my place and He forgave me for, of my sins. And since it costs God so much, I don't want to take His grace for granted. I don't want to disappoint Him. I, I don't want to use His grace as cheap grace. Oh, sadly, I still sin. But I can't just shrug it off. I, I try to use God's incredible grace as a motivation for me to do better to deal with the sin in my life. You, you see, I understand all too well the last line of our closing hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to Thee. I am daily dependent on God's grace. And, and like a fetter that is like a chain, I need God's grace to keep me out of temptation. I need God's grace to motivate me not to wander. For prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And not to walk away from Him, but prone to walk from His truth and His way. I need Him to take my heart and seal it. And so do you. And so do you. You see, Jesus is humble. Jesus is wise. Jesus extends grace to all who will acknowledge their sins and trust in Him. But let us let that grace motivate us and bind our wandering heart to Him. Remember the cost. Remember the sacrifice of Christ's extravagant grace. And daily, may it constrain your sin and my sin. Let's pray to God. Lord, You came to earth with 
such humility. And you demonstrated your wisdom. And you gave us extravagant grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We're so grateful for your grace, Lord. So we ask that you would keep us from taking it for granted. May we never take sin lightly. May we indeed not want to disappoint you and belittle your grace. Oh Lord, bind our wandering hearts to you. May your grace be the great motivation to live changed lives. May your grace be the motivation to live more like you. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all praise, glory, and honor today and forevermore. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you, today and forevermore. Amen.